This is an ABC podcast. Hey, it's Natasha Mitchell with Science Friction. In 1969, the first all-woman scientific expedition landed in Antarctica. The women wanted to collect their own samples. Before then, they hadn't been allowed to. So when they touched down on the icy continent... Guess what one of the first questions was that they got asked? Whether they brought lipstick. Antarctica is such a symbol of what's happening on the planet. The most sustainable proposition we have is women at the leadership table. Half a century later, the leadership is a documentary screening at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, or MIFF, Directed by Ili Barre, it follows 76 women in science on this really unusual 20-day mission on a ship to Antarctica called Homeward Bound. And they're not there to collect scientific samples. They are there to collect courage, to share war stories, to face their demons. Everybody has a plan to get punched in the face, and we got punched in the face. Even though we were on the ship and it was all about supporting each other... I never told anyone. Even in that environment, this can still happen. Pretty disappointed. A scientist. Oh yes, what unfolds in this film is powerful, emotional, full of some very interesting tension and hard to stomach controversy. Myth sixty eight and a half is all digital this year, so if you're in Australia, you can catch the leadership on the festival website until August the twenty third. And in National Science Week, as part of the MIF Talks program, joining me are three of the DOCO stars. Fern Hames is with the Arthur Riller Institute for Environmental Research and also the Homeward Bound program. Dr Sam Grover heads up the Soil, Atmosphere, Anthroposphere Lab at RMIT University. And Song Chao Yao in Beijing is founder of Wildbound. You can find a longer video of this conversation on the festival website. Thank you, Natasha. Great to be here. Great it's a pleasure, Natasha. Thanks for having us. Fern, the trip in this film was imagined into being by Fabian Datner, who is this larger-than-life character, a, a well-known Australian CEO, a corporate leadership kind of guru. She's a rough-and-tough talker. Uh, she's in extraordinary presence in the film. Why did she think women in science needed her leadership input? The mantra that she uses is that Mother Nature needs her daughters. But what what is driving her to send over 70 women off to Antarctica? Fabian met with some senior women in Tasmania who were working in leadership in Antarctic science. And jokingly, one of them made a comment that the only way to really progress in leadership in Antarctic science was if you had a beard. And although it was sort of said as a bit of a joke, it also wasn't really. And Fabian really took that to heart and she really thought about that and, you know, went home and literally had this dream of taking a whole lot of women to Antarctica and building their will and skills in matters that affect the planet and leadership. Because, you know, today the world is so complicated and complex. We have so many wicked problems that are out there right now, right across the globe. 
And the only way we're really going to resolve those is when we bring the best minds to those issues and when we have multiple perspectives looking at those issues. And, you know, Fabian's really well aware that it's a bit like if you're a person who has two legs and you're trying to run on just one of them, that you're not exploring the full human potential that you have, you're not bringing the most effective solutions that you have, you're not really doing a great job. So she recognised that bringing women into this realm of science, bringing science into the decision-making on all these really important wicked problems that are affecting the planet, was the way to progress not only the opportunities in leadership for women, but to address the issues across the globe that are that are wicked and affecting all of us. Fabian's one of the few people who who can do that. Like lots of us would have a dream and go, oh, you know, imagine taking a bunch of women to Antarctica and doing a leadership program for three weeks. Yeah, yeah, great idea. Um, you know, what's my first meeting today? And and we wouldn't yeah. really progress that <laughs> idea. But Fabian goes, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and she makes yeah, the ultimate can-do person, isn't she? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've really learned from Fabian is that whole thing around team. You know, we each bring really different things to, for example, the, the Homeward Bound Leadership Faculty. Fabian's the one with the big ideas saying, yes, let's do this. And there's some of us going, let's plan it. <laughs> and everyone's bringing different things to making Homeward Bound a success. <laughs> so, yes, but that's, that's how it started. I'm interested in where you were all at and, and kind of your motivation for why you put your hand up for what really actually turns out to be, as the film reveals, a pretty wild experiment. Uh, Song Chow, I know that you'd always wanted to go to Antarctica. This had been a sort of childhood connection for you, hadn't it? Yeah, uh, I've uh, received a set of photos when I was only nine years old from a family friend, and I could, didn't have access to documentaries that kids today would have. So they would already know so much about our planet, but the only access to Antarctica were these photos of emperor penguins, of sea ice and seals. So I've always had a childhood dream and wanting to go. So Antarctica is kind of this special place, and I would like to grab every opportunity I can get. I just finished um, business school, and it was really interesting because a lot of my colleagues were going on for these like really well-off jobs, and I was going to Antarctica volunteering and joining this expedition, which I really wouldn't be able to expect what could happen there. I think I was very lucky to kind of grow up in a time and era when China was really opening up and a lot of new things are happening. And I think my parents, although they weren't sure what they want me to do, they wanted me to embrace and try different things. And then later when I studied abroad, I realized I've always cared so much about the environment. But during my school years, because things are so hard and, you know, uh, the students, they're not really allowed to explore so much their own passion. A lot of those desires and the passion I had for, for Mother Nature, for the planet, I have to ignore them and get on with my studies. In college and when I studied abroad and realized the issue has only gotten worse since when I was a child. And then there's this sense of urgency that I couldn't just like really work for a big company or for a polluting industry. I have to devote what 
what I have back to what nature has provided for us. So that was kind of the first um, thing I could take. Also, as a young and passionate person, you know, fresh graduates, like you would uh, want to put all your heart and soul into something that could make a difference. Um, I think I've become more rational, uh, <laughs> but I think at first it was really this this younger passion. It's it's interesting, but you sort of there describe the trajectory of getting to know yourself and letting yourself become your true self better. And in some ways, this is what this trip was about. It, it was asking all over 70 of you to cleave open your soul and what is revealed as an incredibly emotional journey for you all. Sam, where were you at when you responded to Fabian's call that Mother Nature needs her daughters? I mean, that would make some scientists slightly grimace, but where were things at for you? You'd become a parent, you were carving out your scientific career, but that was with all sorts of interesting systemic challenges, yeah? So I was in my maybe fourth postdoctoral position, so short-term research contracts, and I had had my second son. And each position I had had a different situation where I could try and negotiate so that I could work part-time and look after my children. And I really felt incredibly lucky to have managed to hang on in science despite choosing to have children because I, since finishing my PhD, lots of my friends and colleagues had just dropped off because it's, well, you don't see any jobs advertised part-time, um, although that is starting to change now. This is a really fundamental issue, though, for women in science in particular. Somehow men who become fathers in science are not having their careers truncated in the same way that women who become parents in science are. Yeah, many parents, fathers and mothers and non-birth mothers, would be torn between going back to work full-time and being a more... Um, engaged parent, particularly when their child is really, really small. But I felt really lucky that I had been able to stay employed as a scientist, but was feeling kind of frustrated that I was still at these entry-level positions, very junior positions, really being actively told not to take on more leadership roles within my professional organisation because I had family commitments and I had work. So I couldn't take on those. I was advised that it wouldn't be a good idea to take on those additional things. Um, so I was kind of struggling with that. So when I saw this, yeah, this program, and it was sent to me by Clayton, who was my supervisor at that time, I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe this is an opportunity. It's outside of work, but it's kind of work-related that I could learn some tactics, some skills, some ways to progress my career because I had felt, I guess, in grade two, I was the captain of the netball team. In high school, I set up the environment committee. I I wanted to take more of a leadership role, but, yeah, in my late 30s with two children as a part-time researcher, that wasn't available to me professionally at all. So Fabian promised a transformative experience in Antarctica, and I think, you know, I, I kind of took that not very literally, I thought, you know, that we were going to have an amazing experience. But, and I know everyone had a different experience, but for me, I really did have a completely transformative experience. The combination of learning that we did around emotional intelligence, different learning styles, how people learn, 
and then the how we have developed certain behaviours over time and how we then um, apply those behaviours and how we think about how we are was just a transformative combination for me. And I guess it was a time um, and a place where that was re- I was really ready for that. And, yeah, I mean, Antarctica is an inspiring place to learn. So one of the things that I think many of the people on the ship and many scientists could relate to is having a bit of a perfectionist tendency. So you don't generally get to be a successful scientist if you haven't been really focused on studying and doing the right thing and getting all the answers right to get through high school and into university. Not everyone, but lots of people in science have that kind of perfectionist tendencies. I guess two things about that really have changed the way that I operate. One is to recognise that I am a perfectionist and that's been useful. And the other is to recognise that that's not always useful and I don't have to stay in that mindset. I don't have to be a perfectionist where it's not useful. And in fact, while it was useful to get me through university and to be a scientist at a junior level, it's not a useful It's certainly not a useful characteristic for a parent. (laughs) It doesn't lead to supportive and nurturing parenting. And similarly, it's not a great approach to supervision or leading a team. I'm really finding that to be able to let go of my desire for perfection has really helped me to nurture and develop the careers of the younger scientists that I'm now fortunate enough to be working in a supervisory capacity with. Sometimes I still bring my perfectionism to certain tasks, but not all the time. Interesting. Fern, you had had a great desire early on in your incredibly wild and varied career, a desire to go to Antarctica. You had been studying Antarctic algae and you'd wanted to go to work on the samples. What, what had happened back then? early on as a young scientist to you? This was the early 80s in Australia and I applied for um, some field jobs down there and I got really good feedback in response to those but I was told, sorry, we can't actually accept your application though because we don't have facilities for women, which really surprised me because it was the first time I'd encountered anything like that. And I tried two, maybe three times, thinking, this can't be right, I'm going to keep trying, it'll change. (laughs) But it didn't change and it just seemed too hard. So I literally sort of put that passion away in the back of my mind but remained obsessed in a way and you can't see it but behind me there's a bookshelf that has about 80 books about Antarctica (laughs) on it. (laughs) So... (laughs) So, you know, I just absorbed Antarctica in every way, but went on to do other things, became involved in fish research and did other things. So when I saw Homeward Bound advertised, it seemed a remarkable triumvirate for me. It was like it brought together these three things that I was deeply passionate about, Antarctica, gender equity and leadership, and I literally could not quite believe it. It felt like it was written for me. And I had massive imposter syndrome, though. I thought, there's no way I'll get in. There's no way I will get in. But I'm going to give it a try because I, would, I couldn't not try. <laughs> 
And when I finally went there, and it was actually the same place, at Carlini Research Station, when I actually saw moss and algae, I fell to my knees. (laughs) And it's giving me goosebumps now just remembering it because it was so exciting to actually be in Antarctica and see the way in which algae and moss were growing there. And at the same time, to be aware of the retreating glacier right there, the nun attack that was now exposed because of the glacier retreating, and to see the fragility and vulnerability of this extraordinary place. So it, it was, um, yeah, bittersweet, but astonishing. No accident was it that Homeward Bound had taken you to Antarctica because it is both this incredibly resilient but incredibly vulnerable landmass and it's kind of ground zero of the conversation we need to have about climate change. Just to go back to that experience of being told as a young woman, well, I'm sorry, we don't have the facilities for you at Antarctica. What did that early barrier do to you, your state of mind? I mean, you didn't go on to become an Antarctic scientist and yet you've got a bookshelf of 80 books (laughs) on Antarctica, but just climb inside that early encounter? I mean, I'm a bit older than Song Chao and Sam, and I guess I you know, started a scientific career when things were more difficult. When I grew up, like my, my dad was a mathematician, a statistician, and we used to just talk maths and chaos theory all the time. So it never occurred to me that you couldn't do whatever you like in science. So when I began to hit these barriers, it was quite a shock to me. And then when I went and did the fish research, I also encountered some more barriers. So it was, I, I, I ended up being a bit like the reed or like the meandering river where every time I hit a barrier, I'd just go another place. <laughs> and I just kept doing that. But then Homeward Bound made me reflect a bit on those barriers. And of course, things have changed a lot. Things are a lot better these days. There are still things that persist. There are still things that we need to work on. And Homeward Bound does help give us the will and the skills to do that and support other women. Yes, things have changed. But what is revealed in the leadership, this documentary screening it at uh, the International Film Festival, Melbourne International Film Festival this year, it reveals that, that women still encounter unacceptable levels of sexual harassment, of sexual assault, And then what becomes apparent is that people on board start sharing their stories and it becomes an incredibly emotional journey for all of you, I think. And Fern, I just will come back to you because you do share a story in the film of an early field trip as a young scientist. Just share that briefly for us now to give us a sense of what you and others continue to experience today. So I think you're probably talking about the conversation I had with Lauren about her work in the mining industry. And she'd been talking about an incident where she and a colleague had had their drinks spiked, which was pretty challenging. That, you know, reminded me of things that I'd experienced similarly. And I was working at a semi-remote research station where I was the only woman there. And one of the men there... um, took a, a shotgun to the little hut that I was living on, on site, and, you know, shot through the whole room and 
Um, and I wasn't, although I was shocked that that happened, <laughs> unsurprisingly, I guess, <laughs> I was more surprised that nothing really happened. You know, if I think that happened today, there would be quite a response and I would feel really supported. But at the time that that happened in the mid-80s, it was, you know, don't make a fuss. Oh, we've we've had a chat to him. I don't think he'll do it again. Okay, you know, what what's next for today? So it was really diminished. It's not something that I dwell on or is that a, you know, a big thing in my background. It's just there's a whole lot of stories like that. All women have these stories like that. We have lots of them and we just learn to deal with them and we're trying to build a more collegiate um, atmosphere with our colleagues now so that uh, we have a different way of working together. Well, I think the issue is that that often for women in science, we keep, we bottle those stories up and we push them aside because we've got to kind of get on the business of, of thriving and surviving and pushing forward with our passionate careers. And there's a really interesting premise at the heart of this film that perhaps women lead differently. I mean, Fabian describes it like this. She says, there are some mission-critical differences when women are leading at their best that our world really needs right now. And, you know, my experience, certainly when I was studying engineering, was that there was a prevailing belief or feeling amongst women that we needed to be one of the boys, you know. I didn't have this feeling, but this was something I encountered a lot, that we needed to kind of not stand out too much. We are just as capable and just as good as the men doing engineering. So I'm interested in your reflections on this question of whether women do leadership differently. Song Chow, what, what's your thought about this, about Fabian's sort of attempt to push women forward into leadership because she thinks women are distinct? I think... Um I now have a different answer uh, from when I was on the journey. Over the years, actually since Homeward Bound, I have started my own organization and I've actually worked with remarkable women leaders. And I think I'm, I'm finding the dots are actually connecting. Often, you know, when we talk about leadership, you don't question what kind of leadership you're thinking about, but you automatically think about a male-dominated leadership model, which is usually one person at the top. And it's usually, um, you know, uh, there's leaders and followers. And I think women lead in a more diverse way. And usually um, there's more connection, there's more communication. It's not always uh, smooth and like very direct or super results oriented is usually this meandering river like what Fern has mentioned and sometimes you know it has its messiness it has its richness it has emotions and but there is a sense that it's more it's more about the people it's more about the, the next generation and there's usually more of a long-term mindset so I think even the leadership as a movie that's exploring leadership is so different from a documentary 
documentary on Steve Jobs or you know any other leader that we like world leaders right now who are either political or business or scientific. You know, it's it's just like a very different from what you would expect the stereotypical leadership film or books because、um, there's more authenticity and richness in this messiness,、um, which is like nature itself, right? Like river, like soil, and it ha- just has all of its complexities. And I think、um, me growing in the past four years, I'm just like able to embrace all of it in a much more open way because I think I was less able to look at the emotional side, the negative emotions, and these barriers that we face in society, or maybe not、uh, being able to talk about it. But now realizing all of them are actually nourishment for a person's growth. And as as a society, we have to face these issues and these prejudices and these injustices to actually grow and flourish better. Oh, gee, I find、um, that so interesting because we're often kind of. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? I, I,、so、we're、sure. often told、so、to kind、beautiful. of contain our emotions, though, aren't we? You know, don't show emotion. It's what women do, and don't show emotion. But emotion is everything. <laughs> But I, I wonder, though, Song Chao, why you think women lead in that different way? I mean, I'm, I'm aware of, of making generalisations. Do you think it's about the way we are socialised, the expectations that we have of us or put upon us from an early age to think of ourselves in relation to others?、Uh, I think perhaps women experience that more than men. Girls more than boys. Yeah, I I think it, it's hard to generalize or say you know how how much of it is is just women or how much of that is socialized and how much is. Um, you know, socially conditioned and different culture also, I think, have different expectation of women, and what kind of role models we have in society. But I, I do think that women very often hold community together, and I think this is、um, this is true almost across culture that you're、um, not only setting the goals, but you're also actually holding the team together. You're usually gathering、uh, different generations. You're taking care of. The elder and the younger and the children,、um, and very much we need women to kind of carry on and to be to maintain these relationships. And women also have a natural way to feel connected to other women. And it, I think it's a major way that we actually reflect and process and learn together as a community, which is really interesting. When Fern talked about imposter syndrome, and I think like across the board, men and men women will feel that, and it's a very isolating. Feeling right, like feeling that you have faked it, but women have the opportunity, or Homeward Bound actually created the community、um, for us to share this because it's it's this paradox and it's isolating, but it's also universal. And I think you know this is really fundamental to every human being. But I think women actually have advantage to open up this conversation about courage, about、uh, shame, about vulnerability. And I think it's very much what we actually need. In the past, maybe a hundred years, we have been just going economic growth and development. There's all of these external goals to achieve. But like, look at what that had done for our environment and for for our world. 
about. And I think movements like Me Too and these decentralized movements are kind of also uh, within the realm of a female-based model, which is uh, more organic, more generative, and can connect different people together. So I think that's really powerful and that is what we need. And unfortunately, there's not a straight answer or very clear outcome. And, you know, it's not so clear as written in a spreadsheet and we have to figure it out, but it it, it also allows us to claim agency. Um, so I think it's uh, it's definitely not easy. It's, it's difficult for women, but as with anyone else, but we can perhaps start these conversations and start these movements. Yes. What are the KPIs of that leadership model? Yeah. <laughs> um, what is revealed though. Things get quite tense on board. Yes, there's emotion. Uh, Yes, there's joy, laughter, fun, but there's tension. As over 70 women scientists, tough-minded people, thinkers, sceptics start to interrogate the leadership rhetoric that is being communicated to you, this focus on the self, this focus on cleaving open your own deficits, what you need to change as women in science in order to be better leaders. And what you all start asking about is, well, hang on a tick though, it's not just about us, it's about systems, it's about the culture in science, it's about these bigger things. So just how did you all feel about, I don't want to give too much away because things get very tense on board and there's anger and frustration and Fabian, your leader, Uh, who's kind of leading the charge here, your facilitator, really cops it big time. (laughs) Um, How did you all feel about things getting tense on that first voyage? Fern? Well, Natasha, you've mentioned that that journey did have joy and courage and it had a lot of learnings. There were a lot of things that were very powerful and very wonderful and and although the film is very authentic, it can't hope to capture some of the you know, joy of being experiencing Antarctica or the richness of the friendships and networks that we formed and the optimism, sense of possibility, you know, that we had instilled in us. You can't hope to capture all of those things. But it does also capture that there were challenges. There were serious challenges in that journey. I think it's worth noting that Homeward Bound 1, which I call it now because it was the first one, was a bit like a pilot program in a way. And we were the ones testing the pilot. <laughs> so there were challenges. Yep. We were, but I don't think we really knew that till we, we got the on the pigs. ship. We knew we were the guinea pigs. <laughs> well, a lot of people didn't realise till we were Some on the ship. Knew. that Oh, okay. Once that became apparent, and of course there were all kinds of tensions that then became evident. And again, I don't want to have any spoilers or anything, but but there is one thing I'd really love to share, and that is that, you know, that one of the outcomes of how people responded to those ch- many different kinds of challenges on the ship was that there was loads mm, and, and, and loads. some very dark challenges, yes, as people will see. Absolutely, and very serious ones. That resulted in loads and loads and loads of feedback in a whole lot of different ways. And that feedback, um, although it might have initially been a shock for some of the people who were organising that program, um, that feedback was heard. It was absolutely heard. 
If it had just been an okay program, people would have gone, yeah, okay, average, and moved away. But because it was a very powerful and challenging experience, there was very powerful and challenging feedback. So things had to change in a substantial way. And they did and they have, and it's a much stronger program, of course. And we made changes in the selection process, the content, the delivery and how it was done, risk management, evaluation, psychological safety, the faculty, a whole realm of different things. We made many, many, many changes. So the Homeward Bound that exists now is a substantially different and evolved beast. There are still many things in common. That's the the joy and the central spine of what Homeward Bound does, the diagnostic tools that Sam's talked about, those things persist and are still part of Homeward Bound. But it is an evolved program. You know, and I had the privilege to be on the leadership faculty for Homeward Bound 3. And I can't tell you um, what an immense sense of joy and satisfaction I got from being part of that change and seeing that change and how it was actually quite exhilarating. Now we can see and feel that Homeward Bound is actually achieving the vision that Fabian had when she had that dream, that there will be a thousand women with the will and the skills to be part of leadership in matters that affect the planet. That is happening. There are now over 400 women who've been through this. The network is astonishing and the way that network supports each other is extraordinary. People are doing consequential, collaborative, constructive things and I'm very proud of what it's done. And, you know, I, I think I often think of what kind of ancestors will we be? That, that's one of the measures that I have around, you know, what kind of leadership do we want? And I really think that all of these women who are part of Homeward Bound are going to be tremendous ancestors for this planet. The next 600 who will join the movement, you know, we have the power and the agency to actually shape it and build it. And I think, I think that's a really big lesson I have learned. And I think during COVID, we have all experienced that in a small, isolated environment, how much emotions and tension could arise, right? And I think it was really eye-opening also because, you know, when Fabian and I had our first call, I think at the end of the call, she said, remember this moment because this is how global movements start. And I was having goosebumps. I was like, oh my God, what is she talking about? And then I think <laughs> on the journey, <laughs> I realized... Um, Global movement has its ups and downs and, you know, it, it needs to allow things to grow. And I think, but I have realized that Antarctica is so powerful. A collective experience is so powerful. A community is so powerful. I feel confident to say now that the structural change that is required in the sciences is actually required in the whole of our society. So the patriarchal system that we are all living in and have grown up in and are totally enmeshed in affects our day-to-day -day lives, the way we think about things, the way we interact with people, men and women just as much. And women certainly don't benefit from that, but men don't benefit from it either. A few men have benefited from it and they've set up this patriarchal and also colonialist structure of the world. Um, but I think COVID is giving us a chance to pause and to pull back. You know, as women in science, we might be focused on 
change within scientific organisations within academia. But actually, that same change is required in the whole of society, what happens in people's homes, the way they bring up their children, the way they, how they interact with people on the street as they walk to work totally influences how they are, how we are at work. Yeah, I think there's a lot more work to be done and we're now in a better position to call it out and to find allies um, because white men are are our allies and need to be our allies to make change in this system because they're in the positions um, often of being able to make those changes. Um, But I think even even more, the majority is people from the global south, men and women and transgender people, um, recognising our shared interests, I guess. Shared interests, shared experiences, shared passion... Shared courage, that's definitely what this whole voyage was about. And I congratulate you on the film. And I thank you so much for joining us as part of the Myth Talks program. The Leadership is the documentary that you all star in. It is screening as part of Myth 68 and a Half, uh, the festival that continues until the 23rd of August. You can find out more about The Leadership, directed by Ili Barre at myth.com.au. So let me thank Dr. Samantha Grover, Fern Hames, Song Chao Yao. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, may your adventures continue. I can't wait to see what you do in the world next. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you, Thank you so Natasha. Much, Natasha. Dr. Samantha Grover, soil scientist at RMIT University. Song Chao Yao, founder of Wild Bound and Fern Hames from the Arthur Riller Institute and also the Homeward Bound Leadership Program. More in the podcast edition and uh, info on the Science Friction website. Thanks to the Melbourne International Film Festival team. See a longer video of this discussion on their MIF Talks page presented by the University of Melbourne. The Leadership Doco is screening online until August 23rd. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Happy Science Week, y'all. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.